Hi, everyone. Welcome to the 65th episode of The Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends know me as JAG. I am the CEO of The Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization connecting young people with the ideas of Ayn Rand. Today, we are joined by Brian Yablonski. Before I even begin to introduce Brian, I want to remind all of you who are joining us via Zoom, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, you know what to do. Start typing in your questions using the, uh, the comment section and we will get to as many of them as possible. So Brian Jablonski is the Chief Executive Officer of the Property and Environment Research Center, fondly known to all of us as PERC. Uh, that is a Bozeman, Montana-based research institute exploring free market environmentalism with a focus on land management and wildlife conservation. Previously, Brian served as the uh, chairman of the Florida Fish uh, and Wildlife Conservation Commission for more than 14 years, earning recognition from Florida's Wildlife Federation as Florida's Wildlife Conservationist of the Year and the Florida Audubon with the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Award. His work has spanned the private sector, holding senior positions at the Gulf Power Company and the St. Joe Company, one of Florida's largest private landowners at the time, uh, Brian and I both worked in the Bush 41 administration where uh, he helped craft um, where, and he also uh, then worked um, for Florida Governor Jeb, Jeb Bush and helped craft environmental and conservation policy in that administration. So a lot in common. Brian, welcome again. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jennifer. How are you? Can I call you Jag? Please do. You're oh, you're a friend. <laughs> well, you had uh, you had a much you had a much more important job in the White House than I did because I know you were doing speech writing and I think I was helping the president manage his horseshoe pitching matches uh, out there. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you probably you know in, in the in the Bush forty one administration, all of the speech writers were a little bit downgraded from uh, the role of speech writing in the previous administration. Uh, and so you probably had a lot more access to the president than, than we did. And I started out as a very, very lowly uh, researcher and then just worked uh, all the time, wrote anything I could. And so, um, so anyway, uh, yes, and it, it's uh, too bad we didn't meet then, but, but here we are. Many almost years 30 later. years later. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think we both figured out we started the White House the same month uh, oh, after college. Uh, that's pretty that, cool. That's pretty amazing. What a, what a privilege and an honor that was. So um, you have described yourself as a conservation optimist in, in contrast to the more Malthusian perspective that uh, dominates, certainly dominates many Earth Day observances and, and the news coverage with dire predictions of, of imminent doom. So what, what are some examples uh, that give you grounds for optimism? Yeah, well, thanks. I, yeah, I do call myself a conservation optimist and there aren't many of us around uh, in case you haven't noticed uh, out there in the real world. But you know, if you think about it, I mean, some of it's a matter of perspective. Uh, where I live, Montana, 
is spectacular. I mean, it is gorgeous. We have clean air, we have clean water. Um, I, I go outside, I have a little cabin in a place called Paradise Valley here. It's actually the, it's supposed to be the setting for the TV show Yellowstone where uh, that stars Kevin Costner. And I go out at night and the stars, you know, everybody goes out and they look for the, for the Big Dipper. Um, I can't pick out the Big Dipper because there are so many stars in the sky. It like overshadows uh, a lot of the constellations that we're familiar with. Um, so that's, I mean, part of it is living in Montana and actually being a part of nature and not doing it from a city and seeing, you know, how spectacular our landscape is and what a good job America has done in, uh, in protecting and conserving some of our, our vital places. Think about where we were 50, 100 years ago. Uh, we had clear cutting of our forests. We had wildlife that uh, was, was uh, dwindling. Uh, populations were in, in jeopardy. Uh, we had sort of blatant pollution of air and water. And you look at today, um, I, I think about wildlife rebounding, uh, you know, out here. Um, you know, we have white-tailed deer. You know, everybody's familiar with white-tailed deer. You know, at one point, white-tailed deer in America were down to 300,000. Today, we're up to 32 million white-tailed deer. I mean, that was, that's the amount of white-tailed deer uh, in the United States that we had at the time of Lewis and Clark and their expedition out west. Bison, you know, the national mammal was, uh, we got down to fewer than 1,000 bison at the turn of the last century, and we're up to half a million bison today. Most of those bison, 90% of those bison are on private lands. They're in private ranches and it's been private property, uh, private ranchers that have helped the bison recovery. Elk, we were down to 100,000, we're at a million elk. Uh, wild turkey, uh, everybody sees wild turkey these days. We were down to like 30,000 wild turkey in the early 20th century. We have 7 million wild turkey now. So you have these really great wildlife stories that never get talked about. Grizzly bears in Yellowstone, are seven times, eight times their number uh, than when they went on the endangered species list. The bald eagles off the endangered species list. Great wildlife stories. Um, I talk about carbon emissions. I mean, everybody wants to talk about climate change and carbon emissions. And uh, the story that never gets told is that thanks to, uh, thanks to the entrepreneurship uh, and technology associated with uh, hydraulic fracking and horizontal drilling of shale gas, we've had this shale gas revolution so we've, we've essentially moved a lot of our energy footprint from coal to natural gas and from oil to natural gas. And as a result of that, total carbon emissions in the United States are down to their levels that we were admitting back in the early 1990s. So think about that. We're, our total emissions of carbon today is the same as what it was in the 1990s. And we added about 65 or 70 million people who are driving cars, who are using air conditioning, who are using energy. That's all, that's all natural gas. That's a big function of, of kind of the innovation went with natural gas and with um, energy efficiency technologies that folks are able to monitor more at their homes and thermostats and you have the Nest technology. Um, reforestation in the United States. Uh, people think of forests like, oh, we're growing, we're developing. Uh, but our forests, we have about 70, 760 million acres of forests in America. That's the same amount of forest land we had 100 years ago. And 60% of that's privately owned. So that's another private you know, stewardship uh, model out there. So there are stories like this on and on that I can tell that just don't get covered. It doesn't, it doesn't make for good news, but, um, but we are doing a good job with conservation in America. And that's why, that's why I'm positive about it. And I'll be out there preaching, preaching that gospel.
Yeah, well, uh, we've had our friends John Tierney on, uh, who talks about the power of bad that we're kind of wired to, to look for the negative and for threats. And then, of course, you know, the media is, is constantly um, trying to alarm us, you know, with uh, what's going wrong. It, it's just, it's more newsworthy. And so I, I think we do get a skewed picture and don't necessarily take into account all of this progress and pause for a moment um, with gratitude for, for how much uh, progress we've, we've made. And to build on that progress, uh, you favor an approach of free market environmentalism. What is it and what are some examples of that approach at work? Yeah, so, uh, so you have to know the history of PERC. So PERC was founded 40 years ago by a handful of outdoor loving economists. So our original name was not the Property and Environment Research Center, it was the Political Economy Research Center. Um, and then for, I tell the story for about 30 minutes in the middle there, our board decided that PERC would stand for uh, protecting the environment through ruthless capitalism. <laughs> uh, and then they came to their senses after about a half hour and we became the Property and Environment Research Center about 30 years in. But our background's economics and economists, if you know economists, they look at incentives. They believe incentives matter and getting the incentives right is a key part to getting conservation right. And one way that we've kind of espoused uh, doing conservation, which is a little different than the Malthusian model potentially here, is that incentive is that we we think we should incentivize conservation through markets and property rights. That is a positive incentive. It's voluntary, it's cooperative, it's based on exchange to get the right outcomes. Um, trade, you know, if you have a property right and, and you're the person that somebody wants to do, do the conserving, somebody can pay you for that. There's an exchange there. The, the alternate model is, is political environmentalism and that's where you have regulation and litigation and more legislation, that may be incentive-based, but it's negative incentives. I mean, you're being, you're essentially being punished. It's force, it's not carrot to get you there. And what you find is from administration to administration, if you rely on the political environmentalism model, uh, it changes. <laughs> you know, I mean, you look at some of the environmental issues of, of the last decade, you know, Bears Ear National Monument in Utah, like everybody knows Bears Ears now, you know, uh, President Obama declares it a monument. Trump undeclares it a monument. Biden's going to redeclare it a monument. Uh, you have this with carbon rules. You have this with uh, waters of the U.S. rules where it's you get political whiplash and it's it's I win, you lose and it's not sustainable. But if you could if you can make conservation make economic sense for the person that you want to do the conserving, if you make conservation an asset instead of a liability, that's free market environmentalism. And that's more durable and that's more sustaining. So that's, so, go ahead. Yeah, so one of the issues, speaking of, uh, of, of political whiplash and, and uh, things that Biden you know, has reversed from the previous administration, uh, one of those changes was the Keystone Pipeline and, and Biden's revoking of the, the permit needed for a, a US stretch of the 1200 mile project. Um, what what's your view of of that decision? Uh, is it is it going to be a good thing for the environment? Uh, was was that a environmental threat, or um, were there other considerations uh, such as you know Native American opposition that that were at play? And um, yeah, 
Yeah, Keystone, Keystone's a big deal in Montana. Um, you know, I think that the problem, Keystone is political environmentalism. I mean, it, I think people stopped looking at the facts and, and determining whether, I mean, think about it, if you're not moving uh, crude through a pipeline, you're moving it through rail cars, right? Is that any safer to be moving, you know, oil across the country in trucks or rail cars versus a pipeline? You know, if you looked at just kind of the science of it, uh, moving that moving that through the United States via pipelines probably a safer and more environmentally sound way uh, than the other alternatives. The problem is nobody even thinks about it anymore. Keystone, all you say is Keystone, and you instantly have political polarization, mm-hmm. and you have actions based on that. So I I firmly believe you know President probably in that particular case was playing to that's the base like that's the symbolic thing that he had to do whether he wanted two or not. The other thing, you know, Keystone was one of those, uh, the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge is one of those two. That's been playing out, Jennifer, since we were in the White House. You know, the question is, are we going to drill the Alaska National, in the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge? Is it safe to drill? What impact would it have for species? Um, And that has been political whiplash. But one of the things that PERC in that particular case has looked at is, could you have a market-based solution? And, and perhaps the Biden administration might embrace this, but think about this. Um, the Trump administration put, put half a million acres out to bid for drilling, for le- you know, lease rights to drill in the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge. The bids came in and the winning bid was $14 million, $14 million to drill in the refuge. I mean, that that amount of money has been spent many times over, over 50 years of lobbying and politically posturing by conservation groups and others on this issue. If the conservation groups were allowed to bid to retire leases, to not drill, something we call non-use rights, in a true market-based sense, they could have raised $15 million and won the rights to not drill there. So, you know, the market can actually work for conservation if allowed to. The way the laws are set up today, they're not allowed to do that. So it's a use it or lose it proposition. If you if you bid on an oil and gas project, you got to use the oil and gas. Um, but in a true market, I think it'd be fascinating to see what would happen. I mean, the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge doesn't have to be a political issue. It can be a market issue. And the, the highest bidder determines what happens with the refuge. Got it. Um, I want to remind everyone who's watching on our various social media platforms, including all of our loyal crew who always signs up uh, for, for us here on the Zoom webinar, um, please uh, start teeing up your questions. Uh, this is a really unique opportunity. Um, so go ahead, type them in. We'll get to as many of them as possible. And, um, and it's, it's interesting, Brian, because uh, we've had a couple of webinars recently. I think uh, we had Stephen Coonan last week. He actually was in the Obama uh, administration as Undersecretary of Science of, of, um, of uh, the Environment. Um, and he wrote a book called Unsettled about uh, what we know, what we don't know about uh, climate change. And then uh, we also had Michael Schellenberger on, on the show um, who, who wrote Apocalypse Never. So I know that PERC focuses uh, more on land management and wildlife conservation, um, but uh, does it, do you guys have a perspective uh, in, in terms of prioritizing uh, climate change? It grabs all of the headlines as, yeah, you, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, is it the number one threat? It certainly isn't the only 
threat? And, and what are, if it's not, what are uh, some of the issues that, that you feel uh, need some, some more attention that uh, the whole climate change debate might be crowding out? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and climate change, I mean, look, I, we believe it per climate change is real and it needs to be addressed. And it, and it, is, a, it is a significant issue. But it's, it's so intertwined with all these other issues. As you mentioned, we're very focused on land, water, and wildlife. And climate change as an issue sometimes is not the core issue threatening those, those, uh, those elements, but sometimes is a, has a tendency to magnify, amplify, and expand uh, those problems. You know, it can exasperate. So look at a, like a big problem in addition to climate change is habitat loss, right? And habitat loss, if you look at it, can come can be like fragmentation and development and loss of land uh, as a result of that. But in the case of, of wetlands, it could be rising sea levels that um, that could be related to climate related to climate change that could consume habitat, you know, through rising sea levels too. It's it's kind of a mixed problem. Some of that's climate change. Some of that's not climate change. Forests, which I think we'll get into. It's kind of the same issue, you know, like there's an element of climate change there, but there's there's some big problems that predate any of the issues related to climate change that are really impacting forest health these days. So it's complicated. We tend to focus on land, wildlife and water issues because that's our core. Like that's what we've done for 40 years. And to the extent there's some infusion of climate change issues into that, um, you know, we we definitely want to address those things. We tend to be focused more on things like market based adaptation. To climate change. Um, I think Schellenberger is a great example. Uh, he's, he's been a thought leader in this area. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because we, you know, there's no silver bullet to climate change. I think that's what we're finding right now. Uh, and I think it's fine. There's, there's a lot of trade-offs uh, to use an economics term for how we, how we address this. Um, we can move away from fossil fuel and put up windmills and and a huge vast array of solar fields, but there's a consumption of land, you know, that goes, that goes to habitat fragmentation and, and, and a significant issue there. Um, and we are moving away from fossil fuels. That, that was a market-based, property rights-based move to, to, to shift more to natural gas. But to Schellenberger's point, you know, if we're really serious about climate change, we would be focusing on nuclear. Like it is the largest baseload generation. And so you, you have to wonder, like th- this is a, to the extent this is a really big issue, it needs big, serious market-based solutions, not sort of top-down regulatory-based solutions. It would seem like it would gravitate us to nuclear energy as a as a better solution at the end of the day. So yeah, and and I think it needs uh, proper science. It needs a uh, accurate and not an alarmist approach to uh, to interpreting what we're measuring um, and and also a better predictions about about the future so well, truth and advertising also you know because you know it's it, we can all say there's climate change and we can all agree with that or most can agree with that the question is what do you do right at the end of the day and there has to be sort of truth in advertising in terms of what is the you know if you go down one road and it's it's heavy top-down response and sort of clamping down on the economy and making societies poorer um what you know what are we going to get out of that like what is the you know, what's the temperature change we're going to get? Like, how are we going to stem this? And I don't think, I think the debate's been sort of lacking on the trade-off side of it. Because I think people, people are honest, they want to address climate change, but they want to know what, at what cost, you know, what are the trade-offs here? Uh, And it can make better, folks can make better informed decisions that way. So 
I remember, I think it was at an SPN conference when I uh, walked by a perk table and, uh, and picked up a wonderful booklet that you guys had on um, wildfires and uh, land management. And that was particularly interesting to me because this house is one that I rebuilt uh, in 2007 after a fire, uh, which actually it was exacerbated by uh, the Santa Ana winds, but, um, but it was started by arson. So, uh, you know, as mentioned, a lot of the talk um, and coverage of, of recent fire, fire fires have been kind of um, pressed into the service of, of climate change alarmism, but, um, and there's not much conversation about what are some of the other policies, maybe their government policies, environmental policies, uh, that should be the focus of, of some of the more direct causes and, and accessible solutions. Yeah. No, well, and and you're living it. Like your your backyard is ground zero for what we're experiencing. I mean, fires are they're larger, they're more devastating than they've been at any time in the past. You know, the fire season these days is 80, 80 days longer than it was in 1970. Um, you know, you think about 2020 and what we just came through in the rearview mirror and what we're in today. I mean, we lost 10 million acres of forest land to fires in 2020, which was a record for, for modern history. So this is a huge issue. Um, it tends to be postured as an either or issue. It's there are a lot of folks that say, hey, it's it's climate change. And if you don't you know, address climate change, uh, you're not going to solve the wildfire problem. What's interesting is that a couple of years ago, uh, there were Forest Service scientists that went out to study what were the drivers of wildfire severity out there. And they looked at four factors. Uh, they looked at climate was one of the factors. They looked at topography. They looked at something called uh, uh, fire weather. So fire weather would be like wind speeds and humidity, things like that. Uh, and they looked at, at live fuel, you know, what was what was on the forest floor already. And, and then they, they gave a percent, like what was the cause of wildfire severity? Interestingly, climate was only 14% is what they found out. The largest driver of wildfire severity was live fuel on the, on the forest yeah. floor. It was 53%, 53% more than all the others combined was live fuel. And, and the solution to that is more forest management. So, um, and, and more forest management, you know, we've, the Forest Service, you know, our public lands, our public forests, we have 193 million acres of national forest. Uh, 63 million of those acres are in high or severe risk of wildfire at this point. They need, they need cleaned out. They need managed. Nature used to do this. We stopped nature from doing this. There's a whole history of fire suppression. You know, this was this is essentially a man-made thing, and it and it goes back a hundred years. Uh, so this is this is really about policies that were created back when the Forest Service was founded in the early 1900s. Not not as much about climate change, but and addressing climate change could be important. But you've got all this fuel in the forest right now that needs to be managed, needs to be addressed. Are these massive? Uh, conflagrations are just going to continue to happen. Why Why isn't it being managed? Is it just that the, the forest services and agencies aren't doing a good job of it? Are there 
particular policies which are uh, pre preventing it, saying you can't do controlled burns because yeah. it's this particular species that's going to be impacted. Yeah, government, it's interesting, the history of government here, like government has, has, there's been a lot of mismanagement of our forests when it comes to government. And it's not like intentional mismanagement. It's just, you, you look back at it. I mean, government has their fingerprints kind of all over the, the forest problem. Um, primarily two, one was a, a policy of fire suppression that we talked about that, that goes back a hundred years. The other is uh, regulations that are set up that actually impede the ability to do restoration projects on our forest lands right now. So, um, but to take us back to the first problem, how we got here, uh, interestingly, um, this government created phenomena started back in 1910. There was a fledgling you know, agency of bureaucracy that was created called the Forest Service. It was run by a forester named Gifford Pinchot. And he wasn't quite sure like what they were supposed to do. You know, they had these lands that Theodore Roosevelt had brought under public uh, into public force. And they had this body of lands there. In 1910, there was a massive wildfire out here in Montana and Idaho called the Big Burn. Uh, Three million acres burned, 87 people were killed in the fire. And Gifford Pinchot had this epiphany that, you know, the Forest Service had no new mission. And the new mission was to eliminate wildfire. And the new edict was, you know, if you see a fire, it is to be put out by 10 a.m. the next morning. That was the that was the edict out there. So for 100 years, we had Smokey the Bear policy, right? Everybody knows Smokey the Bear. Only you can prevent world forest fire. So all of the government resources have gone in into just stopping fire, stopping fire, stopping fire. And, you know, that's has led up to this huge buildup of, you know, what I say is we have too much wood in the woods at this point. Um mm -hmm. You think about tree mortality that's out there, you know, back in the 1950s, we had 1 billion board feet of tree mortality. Uh, these days, it's like 4 billion board feet of tree mortality. Um, we're, not, um, we're not thinning the forest enough. So if you think of um, a, a problem that we're having is uh, the ability to do forest harvests. And in the 1988, we were harvesting like 12 billion, 12 billion board feet of forest. Today, we only harvest something like 3 billion board feet of forest. So, you know, 100 years of suppression has led to tons of undergrowth that has created this live, uh, live fuel process. Um, compounding the problem is that when the government does go out and suppress and fight these fires as aggressively as they had, you create a moral hazard or essentially a subsidy. So people build, if the government's going to come and save your house, you build in risky areas, right? It's like national flood insurance program. You know what? You're just going to keep rebuilding in the flood zone because government's there as the backstop to cover to cover your losses. Um, and then the important thing, so that's kind of a second way that government kind of gets it wrong, is the process for doing forest restoration has to go through, as you know, a NEPA review process. This is like environmental permitting. And that can be just get caught in like permitting hell. Like that can take years and years to get through this process. You have to go through Endangered Species Act consultation. So we have a project here in Bozeman that is um, up in the mountains. We have a reservoir. We have forests around there. If there's a forest fire up there, all that sediment's going to go into the reservoir. It's going to uh, jeopardize the drinking water in Bozeman. So uh, there's been an effort to try to do some thinning, some good management of the forest out there to mitigate the risk of forest fire. That project just broke ground it's been 20 years in the making, 20 years, and 20 years to get through the permitting process, 20 years to get through endangered species consultation. Crazy 
that it takes that long. So government puts up these roadblocks. You mentioned uh, controlled burns. Um, so controlled burns are supposed to mimic nature. We, we talked about suppressing nature. Low intensity fires are actually pretty good for the forest. You want to kind of clear the underbrush with these low intensity fires so you don't have these big crown fires that get up into the branches and really spread the forest fire. And controlled burns, which for your listeners don't know, that's where you go out and intentionally do a managed fire, a low intensity burn to get rid of that underbrush actually creates a healthier forest floor, it creates healthier habitat, healthier soil all the way around. The science on that is rock solid. Everybody will, will tell you that's the way to go. The Clean Air Act, the Clean Air Act, so it's the federal, federal act, every state has an emissions uh, has an emissions standard that they have to adhere to. And it's a level of emissions that they can, they can put out. When a wildfire hits, the Clean Air Act says, no, that doesn't count. That's nature. That doesn't count against your emissions. But if you want to do a controlled burn, the emissions from that counts against your cap. So in trying to save the forest by using fire, you're actually penalized and you can actually exceed your cap. And if you exceed your state cap, you know, all kinds of uh, regulations go in place. So, you know, the Clean Air Act actually discourages good, clean air policy at the end of the wow. day. Wow. Yeah. What are, uh, and I, we're going to get some of our, our uh, questions from our viewers. So I want to encourage uh, those watching to, to continue to type them in there. But what are some other examples of, of government policies that are actually counterproductive? And you gave an example of a, a policy that was supposed to help the environment and, and help clean air that's hurting it, but like agricultural subsidies. Yeah, yeah agriculture. I mean, ethanol subsidies and biofuel subsidies are huge. I mean, it, it, uh, it drives farmers to plant uh, crops and corn when maybe that land could be used for conservation and for other purposes and for wildlife habitat. But, you know, government artificially is, is uh, pushing for land consumption in that case. Uh, wind and solar subsidies in the energy area, um, which are out there getting, you know, wind and solar kind of get this most favored nation status when it comes to energy. And um, for a wildlife, you know, manager like me and somebody who's managed wildlife, I mean, there are, again, goes back to trade-offs. I mean, that's, that is consumption of land, which is consumption of habitat, which isn't uh, good for the environment. So while you're probably having a minuscule impact on the climate, you're having a massive negative impact on habitat. All right. Uh, we want to turn from forests to, to waterways. Kathleen Westbrook, uh, Wisconsin Native American, uh, says she is working to protect water in her state. What are uh, some of the ways that, yeah. um, that your organization is, is pursuing as, as market-based free market initiatives? For yeah, great question. I mean, water markets are, a, uh, are an awesome way to protect water and PERC has been involved at the start of that and trying to, to get that right. For the way, the way it works out West, so Eastern United States and Western United States are different, but in the Western United States, water is a private property right. There's actually ownership and it has to do with when the homesteadlers and, and settlers came in and ranchers and farmers, they actually got to own the water. It was called first in time, first in use. And so one of the things I've had to you know, experience since I've moved from Florida to Montana is water rights. Like farmers and ranchers have, have a property right to water that they can irrigate their field and feed, feed their cattle, uh, you know, uh, feed their cattle with. That water 
always had to be used for a beneficial use. That's what the law said. And a beneficial use was only agriculture uh, at the end of the day. So for the rancher, it was use it or lose it. The rancher either had to put the water on their field, use it for agriculture, or somebody else would get their water right, or their water right would be diminished. One of the ways that we kind of turned down the head and had the property rights and markets work for the benefit of conservation of water is to change the laws in the state to define beneficial use as conservation also. So it just didn't have to go to agriculture. A beneficial use of your water right could be for conservation. Now, how does that come into play? Well, if you think about a stream or a river here where you want to keep strong water flows going in the river for habitat purposes, for fish, for trout, for salmon, uh, when you made that change to legislation, you create a water market. So organizations like Trout Unlimited now come forward and they negotiate with ranchers and they say, rancher, you don't need all your water allocation. What if we buy or lease some of your water to actually keep it in the river or in the stream? So that's inflow, you know, they call that inflow of conservation protection because we want to do, we want to keep the water good. We want to make sure there's enough good water there. And we also want to keep the fish healthy and every, uh, all the species that rely on, on healthy water systems. So those water market transactions are happening all throughout the West and they're really having success and uh, ranchers are getting compensated. You know, it's getting the incentive right. A rancher now says, well, I could use my water inefficiently, but if I use my water efficiently and I free some up, I could sell it um, for conservation and get revenue that way. So it really gets the incentive right. Um, one thing we wanna start looking at that I know some organizations are looking at is groundwater. You know, not water in rivers, but water underground in aquifers. And currently there is no property rights mechanism for that. But if we could create a property rights mechanism on groundwater, you could essentially create a whole other uh, water market, you know, that, that uh, uses the, the power of water as a property right to actually get good conservation uh, outcomes. Interesting. Well, you mentioned Trout uh, Unlimited, uh, an organization my, my father is involved with. Scott on YouTube uh, was also asking if there are other uh, groups that you, you work with, Center for Industrial Progress. And I'm wondering also, you know, they're sort of the big organizations that we hear about, um, the Wildlife Conservation, the Audubon, like, are there, are there other groups that are sympathetic to yeah. the kind of approach? Are you guys out there kind of on your own? How much of your work is just trying to maybe even change the culture? Are, are these groups sort of relying on, hey, give us money and we'll go lobby the government to, to do more right. regulations? So yeah, give us a bit of the, the yeah. landscape. Yeah, so I used to say like PERC back at its origins was a, was a voice in the wilderness when it came to this. Um, people looked at uh, free market environmentalism and thought it was an oxymoron and they thought our founders were the moron part of the oxymoron is what they used to say. Um, but I think what we've become over the years is kind of a leading voice in trying to change the way some of the other organizations think. I mean, we put a big priority in reaching out yeah. to other conservation organizations to partner with them. And I'll give you a, I'll give you a couple examples. Um, Environmental Defense Fund. Uh, so Environmental Defense Fund based there in uh, California and in New York, um, we worked with them on rights-based fisheries. So we, ha we have had a problem with overfishing in the waters of the United States, halibut in Alaska, red snapper in Florida. 
And the way those fisheries are set up uh, or used to be set up is commercial fishing boats would go out in the beginning of the year and they would start to fish and government would say, you have a limit on your fish. Let's say it's a million pounds of fish. And they had to keep trip tickets. So when they came back from their trips, they had to report how many fish, you know, electronically that they had caught. When you got to that million pounds collectively, the government shuts the fishery down, right? So sometimes if you wanted red snapper in Florida, uh, it wasn't available after April or after May because it had already been fished out and you had to get your fish, you had to get your famous snapper from Mexico. Uh, so Environmental Defense Fund and PERC worked on these ideas of, well, we know how many fish the fishermen catch. Like we have their landings year after year. Why don't we give them a property right to that and let them buy, sell and trade? And then they can, they can take that property right and fish it the entire year. There's no race. There's no derby. This is, this is the classic tragedy of the commons, right? So if nobody owns it, it's like a derby. Everybody races to consume the resource that nobody owns because somebody else will get it if you don't get it. Once we give a property right to folks, then it kind of flattens out. There's more efficient use and there's you don't have to go out and buy 50 boats to fish your fish. You can fish them on the five boats. You don't have to go out in a hurricane to fish your fish because you have a property right to it. And if somebody else wants more fish, you negotiate, you buy, sell and trade. And the cool thing is if the fishery gets healthier because you're being a better steward, your percentage of the fishery is going to mean more fish. So let's say your, your property right, your catch share is what it's called, is 2% of the fishery. Well, 2% of a healthy fishery is going to keep growing. So bring it back. Environmental Defense Fund took a leap in kind of partnering with us. We took a leap in partnering with Environmental Defense Fund in helping to implement some of those systems across the United States. So that's been a really great partnership. I talked to Fred Krupp their CEO, uh, every so often we, we are looking at things related to monarch butterfly uh, migrations and paying landowners for creating milkweed habitat, you know, in the heartland. Um, so I think what you've seen is some of these groups, the Nature Conservancy, Audubon is certainly in this camp too, are starting to recognize the value of markets and property rights and private land and private land stewardship. And, um, and PERC is kind of helping helping move that dialogue and helping them get there. And, and it doesn't mean the old model doesn't exist and there isn't money going to go do regulation and legislation and all those things. But to us, it's a success that a lot of these organizations are recognizing that, hey, if you can, if you can get this done through markets and property rights uh, first, that's going to be a more sustainable, durable form of conservation than the, the political whiplash. I think the only regulation I might be in favor of uh, is banning leaf blowers. Though I'm sure if I could work with Perk, you guys could, uh, you know, we could come up with some leaf blowing. You can negotiate with the leaf blowing uh, commandos out there. And... Yeah, that, that, or, or I'm, uh, but my, uh, my bet's gonna be on technology. We're gonna have yeah. a, a quieter leaf blower. Yeah. Off, uh, technology. I think, by by the way, something really cool that's happening in your neck of the woods. I just, I just remembered this Um, in California up in the central Valley, we talk about like the nature conservancy and they're, they're being more willing to try market-based solutions, but you have a lot of shorebirds that migrate along the coast of California. And a lot of them would come through the central Valley and the central Valley is like a big rice growing uh, place. And the shorebirds need wetlands to, to rest in. So there's this program that the Nature Conservancy created called Bird Returns. Mm-hmm. Um, we call them pop-up wetlands, where 
The Nature Conservancy raises raises private money and then negotiates with rice farmers to where rice farmers would normally drain their fields at a certain time of year. They actually pay rice farmers to keep their fields wet and in water so that the birds have an artificial wetland to kind of come into as part of their migratory pattern. And they actually do is like a reverse auction. So they they put it out to bid and the low bid gets, you know, gets the pop-up wetland payment uh, from private uh, private donors at the end of the day. So, you know, it's an example of the Nature Conservancy thinking very perk-like in how they're, uh, how they're engaging in conservation. I love it. And I, and I love the, the partnership uh, strategy that is um, in the DNA of the Atlas Society. And, you know, we're kind of niche. Ayn Rand objectivism, open objectivism in particular, uh, and just finding ways to partner with diverse organizations um, and just to kind of, even if it's just a question of people meeting people uh, and maybe if there isn't like a direct partnership that you can do together, you can start building these relationships. And I think that just makes for healthier more vibrant kind of vasculatory systems of, it, of our sphere. I love, I love that about the vasculatory system because it's, I think people get inspired, especially if you collaborate with unlikely collaborators at the end of the day. I think that's kind of America needs more of that. And so, I mean, I love kind of reaching out to groups that people would not expect per, to partner with to try to find that thing where we can have sort of mutual respect and we can, we can disagree in a, in a whole bunch of areas, but, but where we can convince ourselves that like, Hey, there's a, there's a really sound way of moving forward here where we can come, come think more like perk and perk can be open-minded. I mean, it's just a, it's a good thing. We're we're partnering with a group um, here in Bozeman called the greater Yellowstone coalition. And historically speaking, they were a little bit like environmental defense fund. They sort of got their roots in litigation and mm-hmm. regulation. Um, but I think over the years, they've come to really recognize the value of private ranches and farmlands out here and, and in the Yellowstone area and, and recognizing also that kind of heavy handed government you know, penalizes those folks and it doesn't make allies uh, with ranchers. So we have big elk migrations that come out of Yellowstone and the elk migrations uh, start in the high country on public land, but they end in the wintertime on private ranch land along the rivers, which are lower in elevation uh, and grass is available there. And the elk just sort of love, love hanging out of these ranches. And it's a problem for the ranchers because the elk bring a disease that caused the cattle to abort their fetuses. And it's called brucellosis. And if a, if a cow calf operation gets brucellosis, it can, you know, a rancher has to go into quarantine with his cattle. It can cost them 150,000 a year. A group like Greater Yellowstone Coalition has partnered with PERC, and we just created Montana's first elk occupancy agreement, uh, first one in the state, where we're actually, the, the Greater Yellowstone Coalition and PERC are going to pay for a fence that will separate cattle from elk, and the rancher is essentially giving a portion of their ranch to the elk and saying, like, we will keep our cattle away. Elk, you get this part of the ranch. Cattle, we get this part of the ranch. So there's actually like a conservation benefit and all they needed to do that was to somebody to come and help them pay and finance the fence so that they could manage their, their property, both for conservation and both for cattle as well. Well, that, that's interesting. So, you know, in the vein of, of getting the folks over at the Greater Yellowstone Project to recognize, you know, the value in working with private ranchers, um, 
you you also in a recent testimony that you gave before the House Natural Resources Committee observed that only 13% of yeah. rural Americans uh, trusts environmental groups um, as sources of, of information for conservation issues, um, making, making such groups actually the least trusted of, of the 13 options. So it wasn't just like 13 out of 20, it was 13 out of 13. So, I mean, that's an incentive. Uh, you know, if those groups look at, at poll numbers like that, hey, you know, maybe if we're gonna try to have some more progress here, we need to try to, um, to shepherd these, these relationships. Uh, the same testimony you talked about, only 25% of rural Americans believing the federal government should, should lead on conservation. So what's driving that uh, dramatic lack of trust in environmental groups and of lack of confidence in uh, the federal government on these issues? Yeah, I think it's, it's a great question. Um, and and it's, um, it's a complex answer at the end of the day. I think number one is that uh, ranchers and farmers, I don't think, you know, they're, they're not getting credit for being the good stewards that they are to our land right now. Um, we have 900 million acres of farms and ranches in the United States. And just because a rancher isn't in a government program, and just because a rancher hasn't put a conservation easement on their land, doesn't mean that that land isn't conservation land. I look at the cattle ranches out here in some of the most spectacular country out here and ranchers will do rotational grazing. So cattle won't intensively graze one area. They'll move those herds around, which leads to healthy grasslands uh, on their ranches. That doesn't count as conservation. In our world, if it's not government or it's not a conservation easement covered up by a legal document, it doesn't count. So we have to rethink what conservation means going forward in the 21st century. And we have to be more open-minded to say, these working private lands, we just need them to keep doing what they're doing, and that should count towards conservation. So that's that's one point. The second point I'd say is something, a term, and it's it's a little loaded, but environmental colonialism mm, is the term. Yeah. And, and really where we saw us initially was Africa, you know, right. where you have uh, uh, wildlife issues in Africa, villagers who, where there are elephants and rhinos and lions that uh, were actually a negative cost to villages, trampling crops, uh, potentially endangering villagers. And so they, they essentially were letting poachers kind of come in and, and, uh, and really uh, harm, harm the wildlife in Africa. But once folks figured out a way to make wildlife an asset for villagers in Africa to get a cut of say trophy hunting revenue to come in, all of a sudden that wildlife became an asset and they could move economies from say agriculture to tourism and, uh, and big game hunting, uh, which actually was reliant on more population, having more elephants, having more rhinos and stuff and populations rebounded. Well, you know, the, the conservation groups that are the Western conservation groups um, we're out there, you know, trying to reverse this, you know, they're trying to do trophy hunting bans and things that actually would have a negative consequence and they're doing it from afar. So here are the village, here's Africa. A lot of these countries have figured out how to do conservation in a market-based way that works for wildlife, that works for the villagers. And you have these foreign uh, uh, environmental organizations um, trying to undo policy or trying to dictate from afar. That looks a lot like colonialism, right? That, that was the definition of colonialism. America has a little bit of that too. I think, you know, real or perception, 
that rural communities in America are kind of being dictated to by uh, federal government, people, bureaucrats in the federal bureaucracy, uh, probably well-meaning, but, but it, it, uh, it comes across as, you know, what do these folks know? And environmental groups that tend to be based in the cities on the coast, you know, and not in rural America. So it's another form of environmental colonialism that's kind of happening right here in our backyard. And it goes to the third point, which would be, you know, uh, one of the great economists is Friedrich Hayek. And Hayek wrote about the knowledge problem, you know, and that knowledge, all knowledge is localized and dispersed, right? And fragmented. And so it kind of defies central planning. Like if knowledge is out there in the hinterlands and in these individual uh, river basins, you know, in places in Montana and local communities in Montana, how are you going to centrally plan conservation? How are you going to centrally plan land management when all the knowledge is there? You can't possibly have a bureaucrat who knows all of that. So solutions need to be locally driven. They need to be flexible and adaptable. And that doesn't come from big government, top-down edicts, uh, or from conservation organizations kind of driving that. And I think that is really at the heart of where you see this tension between rural communities and, uh, and the federal government and environmental groups. At the top of the list of who they trust, at the end of the day, are other ranchers and farmers. Well, yeah, they're the ones with knowledge. They're your next door neighbor. They're telling you, I see elk over here. I don't see elk over here. I saw the elk cross the river. I didn't see the elk cross the river. So, Yeah, wow. So we talked a little bit about uh, the switch on the Keystone pipeline, um, another big policy, signature policy initiative uh, is Biden's 30 by 30 uh, executive order, which is talking about conserving 30% of our lands and waters by 2030. So first of all, maybe just speak to that uh, initiative. What is the problem or the trend uh, that 30 by 30 is, is seeking to address or is it simply seeking to build on previous progress? Uh, and you've also mentioned that the order references conserving, um, mm -hmm. not protecting or preserving. And why is that that word choice important? Yeah, well, so it's good. This is the, this is the Biden administration's top environmental initiative and, and you described it accurately. Uh, and it's definitely a work in progress. Like there's still, you know, if there's criticism, people are like, what does it mean? Or what are you, what are you counting towards 30% or what are you not counting towards 30%? And, and people are, are, uh, are apoplectic about that. What we do know, what we do know is according to the U.S. Geological Survey, 12% of the land mass in the United States is, is preserved and protected already, right? So that at a minimum is a baseline. So if you got to get an additional 18%, of preserved and protected land, that's a, something like 440 million acres. So that's four Californias that you have to protect. The interesting thing is they didn't, in, in the report that kind of launched this, they didn't use the word preserve or protect, they used the word conserve. And if you're in this field, that is a big, big difference than preserve and protect. And, and I like to think, I don't know, I'm not behind the scenes in the Biden administration, I do have friends in there that I get to talk to from time to time. And I think there's a little bit of tug of war between the progressives uh, sort of hardline environmentalists and the moderate, more uh, reasonable conservationists out there. And when it's come to 30 by 30, it, it appears that the more moderate conservation folks have, have prevailed. Um, to actually go in and protect and preserve 
would would essentially mean creating more national parks, more wilderness areas, more areas where use uh, of the land is restricted and curtailed. Conserve is totally different. So conserve pulls in national forest, private forest, state forest, conserve pulls in uh, private ranches, private farms, conserve pulls in the Bureau of Land Management. Conserve implies multiple use. You know, you can still ranch and farm on this and, and, and it can be conserved. You can still hunt and fish on this land and it can still be conserved. You can still do forestry on this land and it can be conserved. If conservation, if conserve is the metric, you might be at 30% already. You know, if you start pulling our national forests or state state forests or, you know, certain private lands that aren't in easements, um, you might find yourself already at 30%. So, you know, what counts and how this counts going forward is a really big deal. You know, the issue they're trying to, to address is biodiversity, right? And biodiversity is this, it's this big concept of everything is intertwined in life. It, it's everything from genes to species to entire ecosystems and the linkage, you know, we have oxygen because we have plants, we have plants because we have pollinators, you know, all of that's intertwined. So how do you protect biodiversity? And there was a very famous uh, ecologist, he's still, still alive, named E.O. Wilson, who's from my, my part of the South where I came from, who was saying that we should protect half the planet, like half the planet should be set aside uh, to protect biodiversity. The interesting thing is if you look at biodiversity in the United States, right, um, people think like, okay, biodiversity, let's go out in the West and just declare something, you know, 50,000 acres, 100,000 acres in the West and you know, give it a designation and make it conservation. Most of the biodiversity in the United States is in the Southeast, actually. So if you're going out and trying to count wilderness areas or bear's ear as biodiversity conservation, it's not, it's not that. The biodiversity hotspots, according to the science, are in the Southeast. And guess what? The Southeast is all privately owned. So 10,000 acres in the West might mean less than 100 acres in the southeast somewhere where you do have a lot of biological diversity there. So it's going to be interesting to watch how the administration goes about this because the low-hanging fruit is just to go out west and take more land and designate it or declare it something, which will be divisive, whereas in the true biological, the biodiversity gains that would occur is going to mean dealing with private landowners in the southeast United States and how to encourage more conservation there. And, and it's not gonna be the regulatory route that's gonna work in the Southeast. You're gonna to have to be more creative and that's where markets are gonna come in. That's where property rights are gonna come in. It's gonna, it's gonna be ground zero for some of these conversations that we're, we're pretty excited about, I think. So uh, we just have about five more minutes and you mentioned Hayek. Um, of course, I uh, know you, you also have an Ayn Rand story to to share from from your time working for uh jeb bush so yeah i'll share it's kind of fun so i kind i came to ayn rand a little bit late in life i think in my 30s i was working for governor jeb bush uh it was his first uh term in office and jeb bush was a notorious i think we were jennifer we were saying all the bushes were notorious regifters. so somebody would give them a gift and then they would wrap it up and, and give it back to you as a uh, as a Christmas present. And the Christmas present from Jeb Bush to me one year was Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. And that was my first experience reading Ayn Rand. And I became a huge fan and uh, gobbled up all the other books. And so when Jeb was was terming out as governor, he'd done eight years as governor. 
uh, as one of the tributes to him, a lot of his friends and donors came together and decided they were going to build a library at the governor's mansion where he had resided for all future governors to use. And Jeb Bush and Barbara Bush were so big on literacy. It was just a very appropriate thing. And uh, in his very last day in office, uh, me and a bunch of fellow Ayn Rand fans out there uh, got a copy of The Fountainhead and we inscribed it. I think we inscribed it to all the creators and innovators out there. And, uh, and we snuck it into the library and put it up on the bookshelf there. And there have been successive governors that have come since Jeb Bush. Charlie Crist was a governor. Rick Scott was a governor. Ron DeSantis is the governor now. And every time I go back there for an event, I sneak into the library and there is the fountainhead exactly where I left it back in 2008. So. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. I hope people are reading it and uh, taking its message of, of individualism and freedom to heart. So uh, Brian, where can we learn more about your work? Where's the best place to, to follow your, your thoughts and, and some of the, the leading lights at, at your uh, institute? Yeah, we do. So we have Twitter, we have Facebook. Uh, our website is www.perk.org. Uh, it's a really cool website. If you like environmental things, it's, uh, uh, it's beautiful. We have a Instagram account, our handles uh, at Perk Conserves. And we're very fortunate because in the sort of the free market movement, there are a lot of organizations that deal with healthcare and education and tax policy and, you know, all these other areas. We're one of the few, if not the only one that gets to deal with environment and conservation, which means we have the coolest Instagram account uh, in the whole movement right now. So uh, we get to post pictures of really fascinating things. Uh, we just, uh, that elk, the elk issue I was talking about, we just posted a, uh, a, a movie, a 10 minute short film on Instagram that talks about this uh, work with ranchers and private landowners in Montana and the challenges they have with elk, which uh, is already making it into film festivals. So I'd encourage folks to go and uh, take a look at that. It's kind of the newest, freshest thing uh, we have out there. Great. Well, and given that you're on Instagram in the spirit of partnership and cross-pollination, we've invited Brian to do one of our Instagram takeovers, and we are anticipating some very beautiful backdrops for that. So, so thank you, Brian. Thanks for all of the work you do, and, and thanks for chatting with us today the, here on the Atlas Society Asks. This has been fun. It's been an honor. It's been fun, and uh, appreciate everything you guys do. And like I said, great to reconnect with a uh, 41 alumni from, from 30 years ago. Uh, I know. It's amazing. Looking so, forward to the next. Well, come, come to Montana. Come visit I us. I will. I will. My parents are, are just, were just there. And, and I, we need to invite you also to the San Francisco Flycasters Club. Oh, yeah. Truckee, California, where my dad's a member and where we fish. So Well, tell your dad we're steeped. Perk is steeped in fly fishing history. The owner of Sims Fishing is on our board, and the former chairman of Orvis, uh, a guy named Lee Perkins, was on our board for 28 years. So we have fly fishing royalty that is part of the Perk uh, board of directors going back decades. Well, I, I'm going to get you together with dad because he's got a couple of other uh, friends, Yvonne Schoenard, who may favor a little bit more of a regulatory approach, but I'll, I'll get uh, him to come around. <laughs> I, I'm sure you will. So, so thank you, Brian. Thanks all of you who joined us for this interview. Um, make sure to tune in next week. We're going to have our monthly current events. And for those of you who enjoy these forums and our 
uh, enjoying the work of the Atlas Society, then please consider making a tax deductible or, uh, donation to our organization. Thanks everyone and thanks, Brian. Thank you, Jennifer.